I am Charlotte Kasseragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday. It's October 21st, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors who want to be really clear about one thing. Okay. We do not have a fake Indian prince and his Swedish grifter girlfriend slash compatriot on the show this week. I'm sorry to say. Yeah. And I just want to be clear about one thing. I want to make sure everyone knows this is Ashley's birthday week. So I'm just wishing you a happy birthday, Ashley. Thank you so much. Everyone thinks I'm turning 50 or something. No, it is not a big birthday this week. It's been a great one though. Thank you, Michael. I wish we were celebrating it together at Bar Pisolino, but such is life. Sending you best wishes from afar. Oh, thank you, darling. What a week, Michael. I mean, this incredible story by Hannah Garashi and George Pendle in last week's issue. I mean, people are weighing in from all corners of the earth because they had a view on this, which was wonderful. Our offer is still open. Amar... Liza, even Anna Delvey. If you want to come in and talk this through with us, we are here. You know how to reach us. I thought you meant what a week because the Taylor Swift movie opened, but I got confused. It's a different thing. Michael, come on. I know you well enough to know that you were not at the theater on opening night for the Taylor Swift concert film. I'll just leave that to the speculation of our listeners. Meanwhile, let's look at this week, okay? We've got a great show. First, on the subject of grifters and accused grifters, Sam Bankman-Fried, the man behind the cryptocurrency exchange FTX, has been on trial here in New York. The U.S. government believes he orchestrated a years-long fraud that siphoned billions of dollars from his customers to finance political contributions, venture capital investments, and luxury real estate purchases. Our writer, Jacob Silverman, will join us to explain why Bankman Freed's case is looking pretty bleak for him. Then, Bill Cohan will tell us all about a rather curious law in France that he learned about the hard way. Let's just say that it forbids men from wearing their own bathing suits in some public spaces. And finally, Jill Kargman will join us to reveal everything you need to know about the under-the-radar outdoor music festival that's become Coachella for the 0.01%. Ashley, where would you like to begin? It's your birthday week. You get to open whatever present you want first. What would you like? Well, I think we've got to bring Bill Cohan on to talk about the weird laws of French bathing suits. I thought I knew everything about French swimwear. I mean, I could give you fact points on Erez until the end of the day. But no, it turns out that you gentlemen can't wear anything that you want on the beach or at the pool and Bill is here to tell us all about it. He's an editor-at-large for Airmail, the author of numerous books, and we're thrilled to have him back. Welcome, Bill. I was shocked, stunned, and horrified when I read your latest story. What happened to you on the beach? I was fine on the beach, Ashley. I could wear my Vilbrican on the beach in the Atlantic Ocean, but I could not wear my Vilbrican, my beautiful, expensive French bathing suit, in the saltwater hot tub inside the hotel. Turns out, I had no idea. It's like an unadvertised special that all the French seem to know, but nobody who visits France seems to know unless they've had this experience, which is that you cannot wear a bathing suit, not even a French bathing suit, inside a French pool slash hot tub, even though it's saltwater, 
It has probably as much chlorine as you could possibly consume. Okay, Bill, were you just staying at a ridiculous and snobby hotel, or is this an actual law in France? Give us the story. No, this is an actual law, Ashley, that was apparently passed in 1903, although how and why and is a bit of a mystery. And then over the years, there have been efforts to repeal the law, to lax the law, to have various municipalities. I think in Grenoble, where, of course, they'd once had the Olympics, they tried to relax the law about what you could wear and couldn't wear in a public swimming pool or, or a public spa. And that they actually did relax the law in Grenoble, only to find out that they were being penalized by the central France government from a financial point of view. And so they sort of abandoned that. No, this was not even that fancy. I mean, it was in Brittany on the coast. It was a fine place. It was hardly luxury. It was it was lovely and fine, somewhat generic. But everybody, all the French, it was very French. All the French seemed to know the rules of the road, as you would expect. And the Americans who were there who just wanted to get in a hot tub like they do in America couldn't do it. Even though it was like a large hot tub, it wasn't even a small hot tub. It was a large saltwater hot tub. Can we just paint the picture, though? Because, okay, so there's Bill Cohen. He's got his lovely Vilbrican. And the person at the front desk says, no, monsieur. And what are you presented with as you must wear instead and maybe just like for those of us who can't like the size of it and what you were going to wear and just paint the picture of what if you want to get in that pool that little soaking tub what you've got to put on yeah so i mean like in this country michael we kind of wear whatever we want either in the ocean or a swimming pool or a hot tub we wear nothing we wear whatever we want whatever it is wear like board shorts with our calvin klein underwear sticking out of the top of them whatever it is that seems to be cool at the particular moment I just showed up in my Vilbrican bathing suit, which is owned by an American private equity firm. I can see that point, but is definitely French in its origins. And I eventually made my way to the front desk where I'd made it past without anybody saying anything. But then I went back and asked for like any plush towels around. And they looked at me like I had 10 heads. Like, how in the world could you even think of going into this soaking pool, as you said, wearing that French bathing suit, you have to wear this. And then she like held up this tiny little thing, which purported to be what they call le boxeur, which is really an extremely sheer and almost zero sized bathing suit that this only applies to men, by the way, because men are apparently unhygienic and wear their swimming attire around all day and it collects dust and dirt and bacteria and germs. My option was then to, if I wanted to go in, to buy this skimpy little bathing suit and put it on like the French, we're not go. So less of uh, le boxeur or le banana hammock is what you are then given, basically. Yeah, extremely un-American. Not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but I think it's like mostly un-European. I think this is a uniquely fresh thing. This is like the swimming version. At least like it's like a version of when you used to go to the fancy restaurant, you'd have a blazer or a jacket, they would give you one out of the closet. I guess, is this a used one you're getting or is this a fresh one, Bill? I speak conversational French so I can get myself and my family around France pretty easily and get everything we need. I 
think she was offering me a new skimpy little boxer for like 100 euros or something that I would wear once and, of course, never wear again. Or I think the other thing that she might have been offering me was a used one, somebody's used one that I could also put on if I wanted to. That's well-seasoned. Well-seasoned. When it dawned on me that she might have been offering me a well-seasoned one, I thought, you know what? Okay, guess what I don't need to do today? I had to swim in the ocean with my Vilbrican. Nobody's stopping me there, but I'm not going to have a hot tub today. Not today. Not while I'm in France, apparently. Bill, have you been to Austria? Recently. Not recently, but I have been several times, yeah. Okay, have you ever found yourself in an Austrian sauna? No, I have not. This whole story just reminded me of this experience that I had had last year. I went to two family-friendly ski resorts in Austria, and at both of them... You go down into the sauna and you go down for the sauna Aufguss ceremony and clothes are not only frowned upon, they're actually verboten. Like you can't walk in there in anything but a towel. It is just like not possible. And there was a sign on the door and I was like, my God, I've never felt more American in my life than I felt at that moment. It also feels like a set piece I would have seen in Peter Sellers' Inspector Clouseau moment, which is just... <laughs> but not being able to wear the French bathing suit in the French swimming pool, the irony was too much. It was too much. I couldn't compute. Well, thank you so much for this great story and illuminating us to this law that it turns out is pretty essential. And they're very uh, inflexible on it. And it's sort of like an inside joke. And they don't want to share it with anybody. Wait, you're telling me the French are inflexible about something? I'm shocked. Shocked to hear this, Bill. Apparently. Yes. Much to my shock as well. Certainly on this, which is shocking because you'd think that they'd be a little more flexible. All right, Bill. Thank you again. Can't wait to read your next piece. We love everything you do. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, both. Moving on. Michael, for those who would prefer to remain fully clothed, Jill Kargman has an opportunity for you to do so. Jill just got back from California where she attended an event called Power Trip. It sounds like a for-profit feminism exercise, but no, it is the new music festival everyone is talking about. We're so happy to have Jill Kargman here. She's the author of many books, including my favorite, Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave. And she's also the creator of the Peacock series, Odd Mom Out. Welcome, Jill Kargman. Okay, Jill, you just got back from the Coachella Valley, but you were not there for Coachella. What took you there? No, I was not. I was there for another music festival called Power Trip, which is a heavy metal three-day bacchanalia extravaganza. But unlike Coachella, where I, well, I guess it's Burning Man that's more bartering and stuff like that. This has like $50 whiskey tastings and sushi and poke bowls. And it's basically for like Gen X people who are not going to suffer through camping in a tent. And I don't even glamp. Like for me, like roughing it as if the Four Seasons is booked. Okay. You might not glamp, but seriously, like heavy metal and Jill Kargman, if I was on a game show, I would not put those two together. So really, please tell us. Well, first of all, I do curse a lot, which Ashley knows because she has to edit it out of my air mare articles. But there have been studies that people who curse and listen to heavy metal are kinder, gentler people because we get out our aggression in different ways. So we're actually not. I think I started playing metal when I was in middle school. I would watch 120 Minutes and Headbangers Ball on MTV late night. And that music really shaped me. It got me through high school. I think Metallica was my version of therapy and listening to ACDC and Guns N' Roses when Appetite for Destruction came out in eighth grade. It just changed me. I felt like that 
I'm not religious and going to those concerts was my church, was my synagogue. So for me, I feel like it was a conduit for all of that teen angst and I've held on to it. I've just always at 49, always played that kind of music. So when I heard there was a three-day festival for it with those headliners that I mentioned, I was just euphoric. And I said, I don't like people. I don't like crowds. I don't like the idea of roughing it or anything like that. But I will let... My love of this music eclipsed my hatred of masses of humanity in one place. And it worked. Now, Jill, it sounds like this was an incredibly well choreographed event. Like there was no of the drama with the wristbands and the check-in like you would see at a Coachella or Burning Man. Tell us what it was like. Well, there were wristbands, but it was very technologically savvy. I found that it's all scanning where you put your wrist and then it lights up green. So it's not with individual handheld scanners. It's more of a machine that will sort of sense it the way there are now tickets given out to cars through a weird radar gun on a pole. It's not, it's something that's done individually. So if you have it, you can sort of pass through. So it was much more orderly in that sense. I did feel like it was well organized, but as I reference in my article a bit, like it's an older crowd, so it's not unruly. These are not people who are, even though the music that they listen to is Highway to Hell, they're not raising hell. They're not really trying to be troublemakers. We're too old. And you're too worried about getting in line for the whiskey tastings and getting a poke bowl, <laughs> which again, whiskey, I see heavy metal, but poke bowls at the heavy metal. Sure. Go ahead. These are people who are 50 years old. They really don't want to eat like a hot dog on a stick. Everything was expensive. It wasn't in the same kind of thing where you hear you're getting gouged $12 for a bottled water. It was like floor. It was sort of that airport pricing, but everyone was so well behaved. And in terms of your question of organization, like I'm not a porto potty person, so I did get really dehydrated because you're supposed to drink water in the desert and I didn't want to be in a porto potty. But like they were nicer porto potties than like just the green things. Like it felt it wasn't upscale by any means, but it just felt somehow cleaner than my understanding of what Coachella or the Governor's Island thing my kids go to. It just didn't have that wrong. There also was a snake pit, which is 3999 per person. We did not do the snake pit. I would have done it in my youth in a heartbeat, but sort of in that post-COVID world, I was not in a moshing mood, but you had seats so that everyone was standing. No one ever sat. The seat sort of represents like, this is my zone, back off. And that worked. I mean, there was nothing violent or I'm sure in the pit there was some of that, but it was all voluntary. And people trying to reclaim their youth by like thrashing around and rubbing against people. Okay, Jill, we've got to talk about the air-conditioned bars. I mean, I've never heard of this. How did this work? We were trying to tabulate what the profits were. I mean, my husband did like, he's a much better mathematician, but if the average ticket was $1,500 and there were all these 100,000 people, whatever it was, even if they're paying the bands millions, they had so much money that I think the comfort was paramount. And so not only did they have air-conditioned bars, they erected a pizza parlor and a sushi place with full air conditioning. So- As I mentioned, we are not RV kind of people. So we were crashing in a house, but a lot of the people who did have RVs that we sort of made that single serving disposable friendship with when you're talking, I said, may I ask, what do you do all day? Because the concerts were at night and during the day, of course, it's 105 degrees. So I said, what what was it that you guys 
were doing. And they said we were in these air conditioned bars and pizza places and it was so comfortable. They make it really nice for you. They have cooling stations and all kinds of stuff like that. So I think, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to do that all day, but I think for the people who were there in their RVs, which by the way, they were like smacked out million dollar RVs with three bedrooms and grills and all this crap. I think they were perfectly happy. My last question, any surprise faces you saw, they're like, oh, never knew Steven Spielberg was a headbanger. I wish I had seen Steven Spielberg. My surprises were actually the Gen Zers. I, there are lo- plenty of Gen Xers with like an alpha on their shoulders. There were a couple kids. Listen, I have like three awesome kids. I would never bring them to that. It's just not a thing that I would want to be sort of saddled with a kid. And people were high-fiving the kids and they knew every single lyric to Back in Black and it was wild. But I was more surprised to see the sort of 20 to 25-year-olds. There were so many because they weren't with mom and dad. Like they just liked this music and it was kind of shocking. But yeah, pretty much it was what you'd expect. I would say it was 75% male, 25% female. And of the females, I would say only 5% were dressed like road horse. Like there was not that much skankiness. People were just like, I'm in my vintage gun and GNR shirt and that's it. Like there were a couple with like the implants and the mesh bra and that craziness. But I mean, I saw one pair of Christian Louboutin red bottoms and she's teetering around in the desert. I don't know what she was doing, but most of it was pretty much central casting. So Jill, suffice it to say, will you be going back next year? It depends on the lineup. I think I might be one and done. I am like a New York City rat who doesn't drive. I like bottles of water and and I don't think I belong in the desert is my answer. Fair enough. All right. Well, Jill, next time you hit a metal concert, we want to hear all about it. We'll be very soon. You next year at Power Trip. I would go just to see ACDC. Come on. All right. Fair enough. Look, I'll meet you at the whiskey tasting. You shook me all night long, Ashley. Oh my God. This sounds like my idea of hell. I mean, I went to Coachella back in the day and it was so hot there. I guess October's the time to go. Anyway. Well, it's got to be better than being stuck in mud at Burning Man. Or Glastonbury. Yeah, actually, this is looking pretty good. I get it now. It's like, even if you don't like metal, might as well. Well, on to more serious matters, the Bitcoin bro Sam Bakeman fried is on trial here for what the feds claim was a multi-billion dollar fraud scheme run out of his company FTX. Jacob Silverman has been covering the case for us, and he joins us now to share his insights and whether Bankman Freed can beat the charges. Jacob is also the co-author of Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, and we're thrilled to have him. So please, welcome Jacob. Thanks for having me. So the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried is underway in downtown Manhattan. It's been going on for a while. Tell us about what you've learned and observed in the trial and what it portends for Bankman-Fried. Sure. He's facing seven charges that are basically varieties of fraud, securities fraud, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud. And so far, the prosecution is nearing the end of its presentation of its case. And I think it's done a pretty methodical job at laying out the, the basic facts using some insider witnesses. And it basically all centers around this accusation that Sam Bankman-Fried helped direct more than $10 billion in FTX customer funds to his trading firm, Alameda Research, from where it was spent on 
all kinds of things, a lot of investments, real estate, personal expenses, things like that. And the defense hasn't really done a very good job. I think most folks would agree it's cross-examinations. They haven't presented their own case yet. Actually, yesterday, one of Bankman Freeth's lawyers said that they may not present a defense. I mean, that is something that lawyers and defendants choose to do or not do, as the case may be. But it all does seem rather like there are dim prospects for Bankman Freeth. And certainly before he entered the courtroom, the odds were against him just being a federal defendant. It's not clear how they might go ahead except to say, oh, he didn't know what was happening underneath them by his subordinates. I mean, it's pretty shocking if you're already looking at the defense hasn't even come to the table yet and they're already saying, we might not put him on the stand, right? We might not even. So why are they so concerned right now? Does it have to do with Caroline Ellison? Does it have to do with the documents you laid out that she testified to this week? Or why are they already so far on the ropes in this? Well, there are three main witnesses. There have been a number of effective witnesses, I would say, on behalf of the prosecution, but the three main ones are Caroline Ellison, Gary Wong, and Nishat Singh. They were all close friends or girlfriend in the case of Caroline Ellison of Sam Bankman Freed. They're all top executives at his companies. They've all pleaded guilty to being his co-conspirators and committing a number of financial crimes. And now they've all testified. And I think they have been pretty good witnesses for the prosecution. They're all kind of math or engineering people, and they speak precisely. They answer questions fairly clearly. And the prosecution has walked them through these crimes that Sam McMurphy allegedly committed with them. And in their testimony, it really all comes back to, Sam told me to do this. Why did you sign those fraudulent loans? Sam told me to. Why did you make that fake balance sheet? Sam told me to. And his argument may be in turn, I did not give those orders or I did not oversee this kind of behavior. But so far, you have three pretty convincing witnesses, along with some other witnesses who worked for Sam Aikman Freed, including at least one who's been granted immunity, and some of the also technical people and law enforcement folks who kind of provide that other expertise to say the money moved the way we say it moved, and he wasn't supposed to do that. As you know, there's also a pretty significant digital trail. Very much so. Of him basically giving those orders, right? Yeah. There's been some discussion, certainly over the summer in the pretrial hearings, about whether Sam Aikman Freed ordered his is support us to use Signal, the popular encrypted chat app, and to use its self-disappearing messages feature. You could set an auto-delete on your messages, anything from a minute to weeks. And it's clear that they did use that. And everyone says that Sam, again, as the CEO and owner, ordered them to do that. But a lot of stuff is preserved, of course. This is the digital age. Things disappear, but things are also saved. And there are screenshots, there are Slack messages, there are emails, there are internal spreadsheets and other documents. So there is actually a lot of evidence and a pretty followable documentary trail here. You don't need to know a lot about blockchain or crypto or anything like that to follow this case. And unless they really succeed in confusing the jury on that front, I think the jury can also understand or should be able to understand. This is mostly about this question of, did he move eight to 10 billion or even more dollars and use it for his own purposes? And so far, that's the story that they've been communicating. Yeah, in some ways, it's inevitably, I think it reminds you a way of, you didn't need to be a scientist to understand Elizabeth Holmes Theranos case. Who is the top and who's making the decisions and, and who is leading to the deception, right? Mm-hmm. Very much so. And again, there are some financial records too. And Elizabeth Holmes certainly had to be convicted in a court of law, but she wasn't perceived by uh, as many guilty pleas of co-conspirators as we already have here. So the stage has kind of been set, or at least the crime ring described in official legal documents. And now we're seeing that all be laid out. There actually, I mean, there have been some surprising details, but I would say the, the overall description of what happened at FTX and Alameda, there haven't been that many surprises yet. I think it's really just about filling in some of those details, seeing those witnesses in person 
person. What have been some of the surprising details as you've been observing this? It certainly sounds like uh, there was a line from Caroline Ellison where she said that Sam Bankman Free started his trading firm Alameda in 2017. He started FTX, which grew to be this very big crypto exchange in 2019. And at some points, apparently or allegedly started funneling money from FTX customers to Alameda. One thing that Caroline Ellison testified in court was that basically from the beginning, from the 2019 founding of FTX, Bankman Free saw this as a source of capital, that it sounded like in her testimony that from the beginning, he thought it was okay to just dip into that pool of funds. And it really makes it seem like, again, from the beginning, there was perhaps a criminal intent here to defraud those customers and all their investors. There just were a lot of lies and deceptions percolating through this whole thing. Another big surprise, which I mentioned in my forthcoming piece, is that there was this balance sheet that was leaked at Coindesk, an industry publication last year, and that helped provoke the downfall of this whole enterprise. And it showed that Alameda had a pretty shaky financial foundation. We learned in court that that balance sheet was actually a fake, that Caroline Ellison made a allegedly at Bankman Free's request, and it was one of seven fake balance sheets, and it actually understated the extent of problem in their financial situation. So even their lies, in some ways, weren't sufficient cover-ups, and I think that that was a little surprising because people assumed that that was somehow truthful or at least an accurate representation of what was going on there. Yeah, and it's like when you get a glimpse inside of these shell games, you also remember like the people running them are not very smart as you detail. Ellison's got one of the things she testified is like one of the documents, it was just titled Things Sam is Freaking Out About, which is it's right out of the office at Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> things Michael Scott is worried about, right? Yeah, and it had these enormously consequential items in it. I mean, it was sort of a note, a personal notes document that she said she updated over time, but had things like he wanted to raise money from Mohammed bin Salman on MBS. I mean, he needed billions of dollars to really rescue the company. He wanted to buy Snapchat. He was worried about regulators and wanted to get them to go after Binance, his main rival. I mean, really serious stuff as just sort of scrawled in a notebook, basically. And I think another thing that we really learned from this trial so far is that this was a pretty small group of people all managing this, this wider fraud, you would say. I mean, people who have pled guilty are guilty of crimes that they participated, but they did need perhaps a couple more responsible hands at the wheel to keep this criminal enterprise going. I mean, the common comparison is Bernie Madoff, who managed to keep his fraudulent Ponzi scheme going for decades. While these folks gathered a lot of money under the FTX Alameda umbrella and convinced some very rich people to give them billions of dollars, this all spun up and then collapsed within about five years. And they really had no one keeping track of the finances, where the dollars were, where the crypto was, how much they owed, how much people had pulled out, how much they might eventually have to pay back to themselves. And so there was no advisor doing accounting there who really knew where everything was. And whenever they had to move money in a significant manner, they had to whip together some spreadsheet that was only an estimation of where everything was. Do you think that there'll be more prosecutions to come after this trial? Other people that the feds will look at? I think so. This is, again, a criminal enterprise encompassing a number of people besides the four. Who, there are four who have pled guilty, three who are testifying against Bankman Free. There are other people, I think, who could certainly be implicated. We know also that there is a trial scheduled for next year that the judge, Lewis Kaplan has put on his calendar in for March, there actually isn't an indictment yet for that trial, but there is expected to be one, which is against Bankman Freed and perhaps other co-conspirators, but relaying to political corruption, the campaign finance charges. There was a reported $40 million bribe that they paid to Chinese officials to unlock some billion dollars worth of crypto that was frozen in a Chinese police investigation. That was discussed. That hasn't been officially charged yet or was charged and then removed for complicated legal reasons. But that charge is expected to return in a future indictment. In court, Caroline Ellison said that that was actually a 100 
$750 million. And to indicate how they work, in that notes document of her, she, or in another ledger she had written, she called it $150 million for the thing. This sort of casual ease they had with spending huge amounts of money and speaking in barely scribbled code is pretty funny. I also think next year is when you might see something happen to, frankly, to Sam Bankman Fried's parents, who his father worked for and received paychecks from the company. They both received money and property from FTX. They were part of the political operation, especially his mother. They may face some legal liability and other people from that world. Also, Gabriel Bankman-Fried, Sam Bankman-Fried's younger brother, who was involved in the political giving. So I think it's certainly not over and it could encompass a lot more people. One final question. In a note a moment ago, Mohammed bin Salman, I'm fascinated in your reporting this week that you shine a light on. Basically, what undid this whole thing was Sam basically talking over in Saudi Arabia with Anthony Scaramucci, trying to get money from the Saudis. And what happens? So in the fall of 2022, this is probably a month or so before FTX really crumbles, but it's already in deep financial trouble. <laughs> Sam Bankman Freed, in some kind of strange buddy comedy, flies with Anthony Scaramucci to Abu Dhabi in Saudi Arabia because there's money there. There's sovereign wealth funds that perhaps they can raise the billions of dollars they really need to rescue this thing or plug the hole. And Binance, which has a tangled history with FTX, but it's the largest crypto exchange in the world. Its CEO, CZ, as is widely known, Changpeng Zhao, is based in Abu Dhabi, and they have a digital asset license there of sorts. And a lot of influence. And apparently, Bankman Fried, who's not really known for his social graces, kind of talked a little shit about CZ and said Abu Dhabi may not be big enough for the both of us, and perhaps made similar comments in Saudi Arabia. And somehow some of this got back to CZ, and that helped precipitate this event in which CZ sold a huge and made a big show of it announcing on Twitter that he was going to sell his stash of FTT, which was the house token basically for the FTX exchange, which anytime you say you're going to sell a lot of something and especially an illiquid asset in this case, it's going to make the price plummet and it helped basically expose what was going on there. So it wouldn't be the first time that Bankman Freeze's mouth has gotten him in trouble. That's why he got his bail revoked over the summer. He was talking too much and trying to intimidate witnesses via the media that the judge determined. So, but this also speaks to who he is, who SBF is, and his recklessness throughout this kind of five-year speed run through crypto. He was a nerdy, awkward guy, but he also talked a big game and was willing to tell people to F off if he wanted to. And it helped him on his way up, but certainly also grease his way down. Well, Jacob, you've done a fantastic job with your story this week in Airmail and super grateful to you for coming on the show today and illuminating what's been happening in the trial for us. And I have a feeling we'll have you back as it enters Act 2 and 3. And so excited to have you with us and look forward to having you back again. Thanks so much. Glad to do it. Well, it is the weekend. Before we go out and enjoy ourselves, surely you've got something you can recommend to us. Two things I'd like to recommend. The first is a terrific new documentary called AKA Mr. Chow about the singular restaurateur Michael Chow. This is a wonderful portrait of a fascinating life. Chow, as you probably know, is best known for his restaurants, which have always been a place for the famous to hang at, whether it was Knight's Bridge in London in the 60s, New York in the 70s, or Beverly Hills in the 80s. But as you learn here, he is so much more than that. This is a surprising, I think, revealing, poignant portrait of someone who has shaped our culture. I loved it. It's called AK Mr. Chow, and it's also executive produced by Airmail's co-editor Graydon Carter, and it is streaming right now on Max. Second, I want to recommend a lovely, smart, fun, and very funny new novel by the writer Christine Coulson called One Woman Show. Coulson worked for 25 years at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City and where she wrote the wall labels for the British galleries. And during that time, she always schemed and dreamed 
of taking that tight 75-word format and using the labels as a structure to write a novel. This is it, and I gotta tell you, it's a zinger. In it, Coulson brilliantly imagines and tells the story of Kitty Whitaker, a privileged 20th century woman, but Coulson tells her life as if she were an object to be collected and prized. If you love art and museums, as we do here on Airmail, as well as brilliant and fun novels, this is one for you. I read it in one sitting. It's called One Woman Show by Christine Coulson. And you, my dear, what do you have to recommend? Yeah, I have something I can recommend. Did you see that Liam Gallagher is going on tour? Yes. I mean, that's exciting. Talk about Glastonbury. Talk about music festivals. Talk about, yeah. It's like a Dylan Jones book brought to life. I can't wait to see that. I definitely will. I missed Pulp here in London. They Pulp played this summer and I missed that. So I'm very disappointed. So I will not make that same mistake twice. Yeah. Supersonic. Gin and tonic. Love it. Okay. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. We thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out? Of course. But first, we would like to thank our sponsor, Chanel. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitelli, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram and Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.